0: Listen up, real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and agents, you're in the right place. Unlocking the secrets to real estate investing and entrepreneurship. Welcome to the Titanium Vault, hosted by RJ Bates III. Here's RJ.
1: Hey guys, welcome to the Titanium Vault. I'm your host, RJ Bates. Today, I'm sitting down with Terry White. How are you doing, man? I'm doing
0: great. And you, RJ?
1: Man, it's just another day in paradise. Just uh, taking care of business over here in Fort Worth, Texas. Looking forward to uh, getting some deals closed today. It's always a good day when you can say that. So why don't you take a quick second to kind of introduce yourself and uh, tell the listeners what it is that you do in the real estate world.
0: Well, uh, my name is Terry White, um, and I currently own SunWest Escrow and SunWest Trust. Um, I started out in the escrow business, which here in New Mexico, which we're not too far away from each other, but here in New Mexico, we have a thing called real estate contracts, which is a way that um, sellers can sell property and act as the bank. And so my escrow company, we basically act as a mortgage servicing company for owner financing. And in that company, we service about 5,000 accounts. Um, And then about 15 years ago, I started SunWest Trust, and in SunWest Trust, we act as custodian for self-directed IRAs. So a lot of people don't know, when IRAs were created back, I think, in 78, um, you could invest in anything that you wanted other than life insurance and collectibles. But most people don't know that because banks and brokerage houses uh, can spend a lot more money in advertising. So. Uh, We're kind of in a niche market that's gotten bigger and bigger over the years. We allow people to invest in real estate, which we'll probably talk a little bit about today. And then basically they can invest in anything. Again, the only restriction is uh, life insurance and collectibles. So that's what we do. My companies do, but um, as you and I have talked uh, before the podcast, I do a lot of real estate investing myself. And in fact, I'm actually, something I didn't mention to you as I'm getting into the Winemaking business, oh, um, and we're actually going to start a vineyard here in the next uh, year or so. So, I got a lot of exciting things going on.
1: Is that a passion project for you?
0: Well, it's kind of funny. It's it's evolved from. A, it started out as a sand soccer field. If you know anything about that, my boys all play soccer. Okay. And then it grew into. We had to have a clubhouse for people to, you know, get out of the sun and stuff. And then, you know, in order to do that, you've got to be able to serve beer. And so we, uh, here in New Mexico, there's a thing called a wine grower's license that you can, that you have to make wine, but then you can serve local beers. So we're working on getting that license. And then in order to do that, you've got to have 50% of your grapes have to be, uh, have to come from New Mexico and we've got some land. So we, we're, we're going to plant our own vineyards. So three or four years from now, we'll be growing our own grapes and making our own wine. And hopefully people will be playing soccer and volleyball and (laughs) having a good time. That's cool, man. That's
1: that's awesome. That's a, that's a cool little story how that kind of evolved to where yeah. you're going to be creating your own vineyard there.
0: Yeah, it's funny how things evolve like that. I'm sure you've got those stories where basically the trust company came around because of the escrow business because I was in the escrow business and back in the, uh, what was it, late 90s, early 2000s, you probably weren't even born yet, but um, <laughs> they... Uh, mortgages were really easy to get. And so people were paying off contracts like crazy and I was losing business. So I had to come up with another idea, something else. And basically the escrow business and the trust business, the kind of trust business we do is just a record keeping business. So it all fit together pretty well.
1: Well, Let's talk about the escrow business first, and then we'll jump into the trust. Uh, You kind of briefly went over, you know, the fact that y'all are a debt servicing company for owner finance. But break that down for the listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with owner finance or are looking to get into owner finance, what specifically that means.
0: Well, so I am specific to New Mexico, but I'm sure there are uh, some sort of owner finance vehicles in every state in the country. Uh, even just a basic note and mortgage, we service a lot of the. So basically, uh, let's just make it simple, RJ. You have a house that you own free and clear, and you decide to sell it. Well, you can either get a buyer to give you cash or you can get a buyer and say, hey, I'll take 10% down and the remaining 90%, you can pay me monthly payments, pay me 6 7% interest, um, and then you'll just get monthly payments for a period of time. You can have balloons and that kind of stuff. So what my company does is they accept those monthly payments from the buyer. We keep track of the interest and the principal. And then we forward the payments on to wherever the seller tells us to, to send them. You know, a lot of times it's direct deposit in their account or something. So we're just the record keeping company. We hold the documents, um, so that if something were to happen to you as the seller, uh, the buyer could still get clear title to the property when they finish paying it off. Do so you a,
1: escrow the taxes and the insurance as well?
0: Yes, we do. If, if that's something, uh, that's needed. A lot of the contracts that we deal with, um, are what what are called wraps. And so they wrap an underlying mortgage. Yep. And a lot of times when you wrap an underlying mortgage, the underlying mortgage takes care of the taxes and insurance. So um, the only ones we escrow the taxes and insurance on are the free and clear properties uh, where there's no one holding that.
1: See, that's funny because we do a lot of wraps, <coughs> excuse me, ourselves. And the underlying mortgages that we have because they're considered investment loans Mm-hmm. Um, is what the bank says. We don't escrow taxes and insurance
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, on our underlying mortgage. So when we do wrap those, we do have our debt servicing company still escrow the taxes and insurance because our mortgage is not doing it. Yeah. Um, so it's it's interesting how each individual kind of scenario plays out there. And that's why having a debt servicing company like yourself is is so important because you can basically handle all of those different scenarios and situations
0: yeah and our our escrow company is basically regional uh, meaning that we service contracts in new mexico all over new mexico we have a few land contracts and stuff like that in texas um, a few deeds of trust in colorado but we've never really taken that business nationwide like our trust company is
1: so let's talk, let's move on to the trust company and and, you know, for, for me, this is always something that I'm enamored by, and, and it's because there's so many different opportunities to work with people that have self-directed IRAs, mm-hmm. either as, you know, that's a, a source of private capital that you can either um, partner with or utilize. Um, it, it's an opportunity for us as investors to uh, personally invest so we can eventually um, invest that money into other people's deals. Uh, but, you know, what drew you to creating
0: the the trust company or the
1: self-directed IRA company that you have?
0: Um, you know, I'm not really sure. I, I've always, I'm an accountant by education. And so because of my background, you know, I'm, I'm all, even at a younger age, I was always thinking about putting money away for the future and that kind of thing. And so, again, it was just another record keeping business for us. It was a, it was a. something that I understood. I I was a partner in another company back in 1995 um, of another trust company. And my interest then was to do self-directed IRAs and my partners were more interested in the traditional trust business. So I sold out of that. And then in 2003 is when I started SunWest Trust. Uh, But it's just kind of a cool thing like you talked about. It's a a source of money um, that People that are looking for money don't realize the value there. I mean, there's, I think there's $9 trillion in, um, now I could be wrong on that. I may be mixing up my numbers, but there's 42 million IRAs. I know that. And it's a huge amount of money. And, you know, if you're the type of person that understands investing, different types of investing, it's a great opportunity. Now, I'm, I'm the first person that will tell you that it's, that self-directed IRAs are not for everybody uh, it's simply because people just don't understand investing. Um, and if that's, you know, if, and I doubt any of your audience are those people, but if, if one of those people are listening, they'd probably be better off just to leave their money in mutual funds and stuff like that. But if there's someone who wants to be involved a little bit and wants to learn and understands investing, it's a great opportunity to get a better return and have a, have a tangible asset in their individual retirement account as opposed to, you know, some stock or bond that somebody else is in control of.
1: Out of the 42 million IRAs, how many of those are self-directed IRAs?
0: You know, that's a tough thing to know, but um, I'm in a thing called RITA, Retirement Industry Trust Association, which is an association of companies like mine. And we we feel like there's about three to 5%. So it's a pretty small number. Yeah. uh, But it's, I mean it's a pretty small percentage but it's still a large number when you think of 3 to 5% of 42 million and a lot of that is because of a lack of education. I don't know how many people I talk to or talk to people on my staff that say well my CPA tells me this is illegal or how come I never knew about this or and we even have CPAs um, call weekly and say I didn't know you could invest your money in a piece of real your IRA in a piece of real estate
1: you know that's a that's amazing because in in our small little world in the real estate investing world, every event, every RIA, every education program that you go to, there's some sort of self directed IRA company there as a sponsor, in trying to explain that. So, as an investor, I feel like self directed IRAs are like commonplace, mm-hmm. but then out of the 42 million, you're talking about three to 5%. I mean, that's, that's nothing, you know, and and like you said, to, to kind of make that a little bit more of a realization, I mean, to some people, they should not have self-directed IRAs. But you know, for the people that are listening to this and are interested, why should you opt to to have a self-directed IRA over a traditional or other IRA options?
0: Well, you know, that's hard for me to give you an answer. I can give you some reasons why people do. And I, I'm not, you know, I, I have to be careful because I don't give investment advice. And I, so I don't want anybody to say, well, you know, Terry said I should have a self-directed IRA and then they go out and lose all their money. That's, right. that's not what we want to do. But again, the reason I have a self-directed IRA and I have both, you know, I have a regular conventional IRA that's invested in stocks and bonds. And I don't even know what it's invested in, to be honest with you. I have a, I have a guy. That takes care of that for me and i i get a statement once a quarter but then i also have my own self directed ira that's actually at sunwest trust and i have that invested in um i've got some precious metal you know just kind of as a hedge i've got uh, a lot of real estate debt i don't actually own any real estate in my ira um just haven't done it yet but i but i buy debt so you know we talked about my escrow company servicing owner financing well there's a whole market out there to buy that debt from people because someone might think today that they want to get that $1,000 a month for the next 10 years and then two or three years down the road, they see that brand new, uh, you know, Raptor or something they want to buy, Corvette, and then they want to sell that debt and get rid of that $1,000 a month and get get a lump sum of money. So, I buy those and I have, I have that in my IRA and the reason I like a self-directed IRA is I feel like I have more control, so I can do what I want. Um, there are some restrictions, and we can talk about those as we go along. Uh, but the other thing is, it's just tangible. I mean, like I said, with my regular IRA or what I would call a traditional IRA, um, I don't know what's in it. There's some mutual funds or something, and I've got a guy at—I uh, don't even—I shouldn't even—I don't even know what brokerage <laughs> house he's at. To be honest with you, he's a friend right. of my sons. But with my self-directed IRA. I know exactly what's in it and if I owned a piece of real estate, I could drive by that and say my IRA owns that house and or you know I own the debt on that house and if the people quit paying then you know you've got to be careful how involved you get but I can I can see that things are done to make sure that pays off. Right. And so you can be you can be involved a little bit. There's some fine lines you have to kind of be careful with but um uh, and the other side of that too r j is like let's say i'm the type of person that i you know i really don't understand real estate, but I find a guy like you or I find somebody that flips houses and I just want to be the bank for them that's a great opportunity too and that's a that's a great way to help our economy in my opinion because now you're you're stepping out you're providing income for somebody who's creating jobs and doing something and providing you know, providing home ownership for other people. So I think that's a great opportunity too.
1: Yeah, and I think you've kind of covered some of these, but let's go over like some of the main ways that you can invest in real estate using a self-directed IRA. What are those f- main ways?
0: Okay, so the first thing is obviously owning the real estate directly. So if you have enough money in your IRA, even if, even if you don't have enough to own a piece of property free and clear, you can have debt in your IRA. So let's say you find, and I just use 100000 because that's easy. I don't know if if a $100,000 house exists. <laughs> you know, it's hard to find around Albuquerque. Maybe in Fort Worth you can find those. But um, so let's say there's a house, $100,000 house. You've only got, let's call let's say 30 in your IRA. Well, you can, let's say a little more than that because it's hard to find the right kind of debt. But let's say, let's say you have 50 in your IRA. Um, you can put 30 or $40,000 down And get a note on that house now that note has to be non-recourse and I'm sure you're familiar your listeners are probably familiar with what that means but basically it means that if you don't pay the note the only thing that the lender can do is take the property back they can't go back against you or against your IRA um, for any deficiency Um, and typically you don't run into those because you you have a decent sized down payment Um, but so you could own, you could own a piece of property that way you could own it. If let's say you had 110 or $20,000 in your IRA, you could buy that $100,000 house and pay cash for it. So those are two nice ways. The other way is that you can, um, you can have debt on it. So you can do a couple of things there. You could buy debt. Like I've talked about, um, you know, you mentioned in your market that there's some of that and there's huge seminars all over the country of, uh, flow seminars and stuff like that, where you can learn how to buy debt, but you can do that in your IRA, which is one of the things I do. You could also lend money. Um, just a quick story about one of my clients, one of my favorite clients. Um, we've gotten to the point where I don't know a lot of our clients, but this was a story that happened a few years ago. I had a lady call and she, so in your IRA, you, you, I have already said you can't buy life insurance and collectibles. The other thing is you can't invest with a, with a disqualified party. So disqualified parties are your family, yourself, and people that provide services to your IRA. Um, And it's interesting, the IRS defines family as ascendants and descendants, so your kids and your parents. So I can't, my IRA can't do business with me individually, and it can't do business with my kids. So this lady called and she had a nephew who was a house flipper. And so a nephew is not defined as family by the IRS. So what she does is she lends her nephew money out of her IRA uh, to allow him to flip houses. And I think she charges him, you know, seven, 8% interest, which is a great return for her. Better than she could get if she was in the stock market. Well, maybe not. Who knows about the stock market? But it's definitely better than she could get on some kind of a guaranteed return from a bank or something. Right. And you know, that's a great, that's a great uh, um, interest rate for a flipper because a lot of times they're used to paying 10 or 12 or 15% interest. So it works out well for both of them. She's very happy. She's got a a retirement income higher than she could have gotten if she left her money in a CD at the bank. And her nephew has a source of capital. And she's even, I think she's even set up some of this, this kid's other aunts, some of her sisters, not her mother, not his mother, because she's disqualified. But there's, I think there's four or five members of this family And two or three of them help, help this nephew, um, with his flipping business by lending money so you can lend money on real estate.
1: That's awesome. So real quick, you you talked about, you can't, you can't use your own IRA to purchase a property for yourself, right? Correct. So how can you own a piece of real estate using your self-directed IRA?
0: Well, you can own an investment property. So. Think about like um, if you were to go in, if you and I were to go in together and buy a piece of property, we would form an LLC or something. So look at the IRA as that LLC kind of. So the income that comes from that investment property would go back into the LLC, all right? And you wouldn't be too happy if I took that money myself every month, you'd be a little irritated with me. So the same thing goes with an IRA. I cannot personally benefit from that property while it's in my IRA. So the rental income that comes from that property goes back into the IRA by the same token. Um, although you might, you might like me paying for things on this rental property that you and I have out of my own pocket, but that's not the right way to do it. The LLC has to pay for those expenses in the same way. The IRA has to pay those expenses. So if you have to get, you know, the toilet unclogged or you have to, uh, have some plumbing work done or electrical work, the IRA has to pay those expenses. So you look at the IRA as a completely separate entity and make sure that it receives the, the benefit from the real estate and that it pays the expenses of the real estate. And as long as you do that and, and you're careful and diligent about that, you're going to be okay. That's the way it should operate. Excellent.
1: And at what point in time can you Touch the money in a self directed IRA?
0: Great question. So, if you have a, tr- there's two types of IRAs, and one is called a traditional IRA, um, not to be confused with traditional investments in the IRA. It's a traditional IRA, and what that means is the contributions you make to that are pre tax. So, in other words, uh, we're past April 15th now, but if you had gone to your CPA before April 15th, they might have told you, hey, RJ, if you put $5,000 into your IRA, it's going to save you $3,000 in your taxes. Um, so a lot of people do that because it's it comes out of your income and you don't have to pay tax on it when you put it into the traditional IRA. So with a traditional IRA, um, you, have to, you can start taking the money out of it without penalties when you're 59 and a half. And then when you take that money out, it's just included in your Uh, your normal income so you would pay taxes on it at that time and then when you turn 70 and a half with a traditional IRA you have to start taking the money out. It's called required minimum distributions. So that's a traditional IRA. There's another thing called a Roth that if I were your age I would encourage people younger people to contribute to a Roth. The money that you put into a Roth is after tax money. So in other words it's not going to save you anything It's not going to have any tax savings today, but you put that money into a Roth. Once you've had that Roth, well, there's two requirements. You have to have had the Roth for five years and you have to be 59 and a half. But when, if you're over 59 and a half and you start taking the money out of a Roth, it's tax free. So all the income, all that profit that you make over the years, when you turn 59 and a half and you want to start taking it out, it's tax free. So that, I mean, the the Roth is just a huge gift that the IRS has given us, and especially for a younger person, because you have so much time to build up tax-free profit right. in that account. The other nice thing about a Roth is you don't have to start taking it out when you're 70 and a half. There are no required minimum distributions from a Roth. So that's kind of a hard thing to understand. Why would somebody not wanna take money out of their account? But you wouldn't believe how many people we take care of their contract, their IRAs, that they don't need the money out of that IRA. They've they've done well enough on their own, and they want to leave that money to their heirs, to their kids. So that's a huge value to a Roth because you don't have to start taking it out, and then when it goes to your kids, it's still tax free. Um, now they have to start taking it out. There's some rules about that that we we probably don't want to go into on the show, but the idea is it's just. If you, buy, if you can do something inside that Roth that creates a huge return or any kind of return, but a big return would be good, that's tax-free income.
1: Excellent. So you've mentioned a couple of times in the, in the interview so far about buying debt um, and, and the benefits of doing that. What are some of the benefits of buying debt compared to buying an actual asset like a, a piece of real estate like I do and then I create the debt. Um, what's the benefit of going in and just buying the debt itself?
0: Well, the thing I like about buying debt is I, I get a fixed return based on what I pay for it. Um, I don't have to deal with uh, leaky faucets and toilets and stuff like that because the people that are paying me are actually owners. So it's their responsibility to take care of that. There's also the option that I might get that property back one of these days. So anyone who's thinking about buying debt, my number one thing to tell them is don't buy debt on a piece of property that you don't want to own um, because there is always the chance that you might own that. And I tell you that from experience because I have bought debt on property that I didn't want to own and I ended <laughs> up owning it. And so that's a problem. But it's it's just a, another way to invest in real estate that. You know, you trade I, I was going to say you don't have any headaches, but you still have headaches. You trade some headaches for some different headaches. So I don't have to deal with leaky faucets at two o'clock in the morning, but I do have to deal with buyers who don't pay their payments on time. You know, I may end up having to take a house back, and most cases, when you take a house back, it's not in great shape, so you know I've had to go in and fix them up. and But with few exceptions, um, if I was paying attention to what I was doing, um, I've not lost money on those deals where I've had to take the property back. And in, in, in a lot of cases, I've made a lot more money by taking it back than, than I would have made had they gone ahead and paid their payments.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, and, and I had a great conversation with Grant Kemp on, on the show a couple of months ago about this. And, you know, everyone talks about wanting to create passive income within real estate investing. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, that leads to owning rental properties. Um, owning rental properties is not passive income. Um, no. it's, it's just not. It, this is about the purest form of passive income within real estate investing. Like you said, there's there's always going to be a downside. There's always going to be headaches.
0: Potentially, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's just the, the nature. If, if you do any sort of volume, you know, I mean, you're – if you own a hundred notes, there's gonna be a couple that don't pay you and, and there's gonna be headaches. But outside of that, more often than not, this is a very uh, pure form of passive income within real estate investing. And then uh, and, and that's why honestly, we're converting a lot of our rentals to owner financing and then carrying the debt. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just based off of, I, I'm tired of getting the calls about the leaky faucets uh-huh. and the toilets being clogged and, uh, and things along those lines. Um, when, when you go out and you have an opportunity to buy the debt on a property, it's already sold. Someone's living there, it's their house. It's not like buying a home. You can't go in there and walk the property. So how do you perform that due diligence to know if it's a house that you wouldn't mind owning?
0: Well, you're right. You don't know what the inside of the property looks like, but I I think you would probably agree with me a lot of times you look at the outside of a house and it'll tell you what the inside looks like. Right. Um, you know, if they're not taking care of the yard and stuff, they're probably not taking care of the inside. And that's not always a bad thing. I mean, I look at when I buy debt, first thing I look at is the down payment that the people made. I typically don't buy any debt unless the buyer put at least 10% down. Now, I don't, I, I say typically, cause I, I have done, I have bought it, you know, with lower down payments, but I would think for a beginner, excuse excuse me, for someone that's trying to get into this, I wouldn't look at anything with less than a 10% down payment up front. Make sure that that down payment was really cash because sometimes people do some interesting things. (laughs) Um, The other thing you can look at is payment histories. I mean, you know, if I I find something that they didn't have a 10% down payment to begin with, but they've been paying on it for five years and they've been paying well, um, I would probably take a chance on that. Um, so, you know, and when I say uh, the property that I wouldn't mind owning, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's a pristine, clean house that I would buy, um, as a rental property or for myself to live in, but it's in an area that I'm comfortable with. It's, it's a reasonable, it looks like it's got good bones from the outside. It's not falling apart. Um, yeah, if I end up having to take that back, I mean, I, I could tell you some stories about stuff, uh, some houses that I've been in you know, that we're just, we haul dumpsters full of garbage out of. Um, but but that's kind of the chance you have to take as you go in and you have to fix those up and you have to spend some money uh, to turn around and sell it. Uh, so let's so, say
1: for someone like me that is converting rental properties to owner finance and I get a 10% down payment, what would be the going rate or what would you be willing to pay me percentage wise of the of the debt
0: you know everybody asks that question and that's a that's not a question that i can answer specifically because it depends on the interest rate that you're receiving on your con, on your note it depends on the payment history uh, and how long the payment history has been going it depends on the down payment it depends on the location of the property so just to give you an idea and all of the notes, I'm not like some of the note buyers you probably had on your show that buy notes all over the country. I buy them within 20-minute drive of where I am right now because I'm just lazy and I don't like to <laughs> go out that much. But um, so so if I were to buy, here in Albuquerque, we have a place called the East Mountains, Moriarty, uh, a little town called Moriarty. I have bought mobile home and land packages there that I've paid maybe – 60 cents on the dollar you know so 60 percent of what the note was and i still ended up getting you know i, I almost said a bad <laughs> word there but i still ended up losing money right um and so i've bought you know single family homes here in albuquerque contracts on single family homes here in albuquerque that have done great one of the stories that came to mind just real quick is i bought a, a mobile home and land in uh, Berlin, New Mexico, which is south of here, and that violated my twenty-minute rule because it's about an hour drive down there. But um, the guy that I originally bought, the guy that was paying on it when I originally bought it, defaulted within a year, and I took the property back. But before I could get down there, somebody had broken in and stolen, you know, the motor out of the air conditioner and the motor out of the heater. They stole everything. Fortunately, I got renter's insurance the minute I convert, you know, the minute I took the property back. So the insurance company paid for a big part of that. But I fixed that mobile home up. It's on an acre of land. I sold it to another couple. Basically, I think for one month's payment, like one payment down. They, so they didn't give me 10% down. Those people have now have been paying me for about 12 years. I sold them that property for 60000 And the other day, I just calculated the amount of the payments they have given me. They've paid me over $94,000 over the years, and they still owe me $27,000. Right. So, you know, now you need to look, that's a cash on cash return. That's not my, but my interest rate on that was still probably about 17% is what I'm earning. Um, So, you know, that's, that was a, something that, looked like it was going to be bad that turned out good. And these are really good people. They pay on time every month. I think in the 12 years they paid me, they missed one payment. Um, and I, you know, they had a, had kind of a rough time. So I just let them miss that payment and added it onto the back of the contract. So, um, so there's a lot of really that cool I'm
1: always interested in because it doesn't logically make sense for me. So maybe you will make this make sense. <laughs> Why as someone who is buying a note, why do you care how much I got for a down payment?
0: Well, the reason I care is because that shows me how committed the buyers are. So in other words, if I bought a property from you and I gave you $500 down, it's not going to bother me to walk away from that, you know, and just let you have the property back. If I gave you $5,000 down or $10,000 down, I'm going to I'm going to work a lot harder to make sure I don't lose that so the amount of money that the buyer puts down uh, shows their commitment to staying in that property and keeping that property um, does that answer the question I mean it's yeah, just a little better of commitment
1: it does and, and the reason why I ask is because um the the kind of the niche that I found in owner financing mm-hmm. is that we owner finance a lot of houses between the price points of 150 to two hundred and twenty thousand dollars Mm-hmm. Which is actually, and I don't know this to be a fact, but from what I've seen, higher than the average owner finance investor. Um, you know, y'all are usually staying in the fifty to one hundred thousand dollar range, and so when I go and I owner finance a hundred and ninety thousand dollar house to ask for nineteen thousand dollar down payment, that's that's a lot of money. I mean, mm-hmm. and and I'm okay with getting a ten thousand dollar down payment. Um, and so anytime I interview, uh, people that talk about this and you are always like 10% and I'm like, am I making mistakes? Cause I'm only taking 10,000 down, but you know, we, we haven't had any defaults yet. And, and it's more about the, the ability, it allows us to have the ability to owner finance these higher end properties. And, and also the other thing is, is our interest rate is actually higher. We, we actually charge 10% interest. Mm-hmm. On all of our owner finance, um, so again, it, it, this all goes back to. There's a many different ways to do this, um, but I, I, you know, it does make sense what you're saying there about the um, the level of interest with the buyer because I am I am thinking about there was a property in Jackson, Mississippi um, that we did a similar thing to what you did. A tenant moved out, and I just needed someone to go in there and start paying me. And so I quote unquote owner financed it and I just took the first month's payment as the down payment and they ended up defaulting on it.
0: Well, and the thing too, RJ, again, you know, it's a matter of the amount of risk that you're willing to accept. And in your situation, first of all, you know, you mentioned that you convert a lot of renters to owner financing. Well, in that situation, if you had somebody renting from you for a few years and they paid the rent well and they took care of the property, then yeah, I might be willing to take a lower down payment. Um, And you also knew the house. I mean, you know that house inside and out. So you know what the value of that property is where if I'm just buying a contract from somebody who sold it a few years ago, I don't know all those details. That's one reason why I would encourage everyone, you know, I wouldn't buy a contract. I'll tell you this right off the bat. I would not buy a contract or I call a contract a debt if there was not a third party servicing that debt. Because the third party, the escrow company, guarantees to me, in effect, that those payments have actually been made when they say they have been made. If I'm buying one from just an individual who's collected the payments, you know, I I like to believe that everybody's honest, but unfortunately, that's not the case. And so if they tell me, yeah, the guy's been on time every month, you know, and he's never missed a month, I don't know if that's true or not. And And you don't even know exactly how much they still owe you or still owe that person. So number one is I would never buy a a debt that wasn't serviced by a third party.
1: Does New Uh, Mexico have RMLOs?
0: RMLOs, I'm not familiar with
1: that. Uh, I don't know what the R stands for. Registered, maybe? Registered Mortgage Loan Officer. So that's a thing oh. here in Texas where we have to run it through an RMLO. Mm-hmm. And basically, they're the loan officer. They're the ones that are creating the note because I'm not a licensed mortgage loan officer. So I yeah. can't do it myself. So it's like a, somewhere between $500 to $1,000 is what we pay them. And now it's considered a legitimate note that we can sell. That's big yeah. here in the state of Texas.
0: Um, yeah, that, that's here it. also. The only difference is that only applies to people like you that do, I think, more than three a year. Yep, something like that. The majority of the business my escrow company has is is one one person who sold one house in their lifetime or two or three. Yep. Um, there are some investors or people that do a lot more than that, and uh, they're supposed to use those RMOs or whatever they are. But right. I'm not, you know, I don't police that. It's not my job to police, and I'm not sure how anybody actually how that gets policed. But
1: um, I don't either. All I know is is that once you here in the state of Texas, at least um, I think here in the state of Texas, it's five mm-hmm. in a year, and, and and every state's different, right? Yeah. And all I know is is if I read stuff like that, I'm like, hey, that's a cost that I passed off to the borrower, anyways. And it protects me. You know, Absolutely. I, get, I get a ton of great information back from them. I get yeah. credit score background. And it, yeah, there's these are all things that I could go have done myself, right? Yeah. yeah. But all I have to do is send an email, I get it back, and now I know who my borrower is. You know, <laughs> I get their credit score back. And right, we're owner financing. So more often than not, you're, you're helping someone that's in a position where they couldn't get a conventional mortgage anyways, right? Exactly. But- yeah. Now you understand why they couldn't get a conventional mortgage, right?
0: Yeah. Are and that's not always, a- that's not always because of a bad credit score or something. I mean, you know, a lot of times it is. And even in that case, you never know what caused someone to have that credit score. I mean, medical problems. I mean, gosh, I, it's just, it's ridiculously expensive if you have a medical problem or something or someone in your family does. So that's understandable sometimes. Um, but so I, I don't necessarily look at credit as the end all, but it's good to have, no doubt it's great to have. The other thing about uh, owner financing is if you're self-employed or you just started a business or you just started a job, you can't get a conventional loan a lot of times. So owner financing is the only way you can go.
1: Right, and I will say this, going back to your point, and and I'll, I'll kind of leave it there. The reason why I like getting the credit reports is because you're right. There could be a life-altering event like medical bills. Mm-hmm. There could have been. I lost a job and I have a foreclosure. All things that I'm completely fine with. I do start scratching my head though if I look and it's like there's a hundred thousand dollars in credit card debt at Dillard's, Macy's, Nordstrom's, and I'm going okay. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, there's a spending problem. Is yeah. this always going to be there? And is this going to you know the you know this month's new pair of shoes going to come over rent or yeah. the mortgage payment. So,
0: yeah, no, I agree with you a hundred percent. I mean, there are people and I, I hate to say this, but there are people that are just deadbeats or, you know, I know they're not deadbeats and they just don't know how to handle their money and no right. one's ever taught them. So, um, you know, I we don't really get, get
1: taught that in schools. You don't. And
0: so. You've got to go out and look for that yourself. And unfortunately, some people don't have the desire or even realize they need to go look for that. So
1: absolutely. Yeah. Well, Terry, uh, for everyone that's listening, what is the best way that they can connect with you and follow you?
0: Well, the best thing to do is go to sunwesttrust.com. That's our website for the trust company. They can click on contact us and then mention this podcast and send me a note that way. The other thing is, if they're interested in self-directed IRAs, uh, we have a YouTube channel called SunWest IRA, and I think I have over 200 videos there that talk about different aspects of real estate of uh, IRAs, and they're just three to five minutes long. They're short, so you don't have to look at my, uh, you don't have to look at me for very long. Um, so that's a great place to go. The other thing, they can go to our website and request my book. I've written a book about self-directed IRAs. So that's a great way to get started. So any of those three things are ways that they can get in touch with me and, and I'd love to start a dialogue and help them any way I can.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for sitting down with us, Terry. Uh, guys, that's this week's episode. Um, if you enjoyed what you heard today, if you're on YouTube, give us a thumbs up. If you're on iTunes, give us a five-star rating. Terry, thank you so much.
0: Thank you, RJ. I've enjoyed it. Talk to you soon. Take care.